Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star zero on your touchstone telephone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, New Perspectives in the Treatment of Advanced Skin Cancer, Advanced Basal Cell, and Squamous Cell Cancers. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations and skin cancer organizations as well. And um, actually, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for the support of the program today. Now, we have really a lot of you on the call today, over 200 participants on this program today. You come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Egypt, India, New Zealand, and Russia. So it's a bit of a global call as well, and it's really a credit to you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. And this is part one of Life with Advanced Skin Cancer, so there will be a part two as well. So, um, and now um, I, I have to say we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and it's really my privilege now to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Michael K. Wong. Dr. Wong is Professor of Medicine, Cutaneous Cancers, Medical Oncology, He's also Executive Director, Integration and Program Development Cancer Network, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong will be addressing an overview of advanced skin cancers, including basal cell and squamous cell cancers, advanced basal cell and squamous cell cancer treatment in the context of COVID-19, standard of care and new treatment approaches, and emerging role of targeted therapy. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner, and uh, welcome to all participants. Uh, it's a pleasure, honor, and a privilege to be able to speak to you today about uh, advanced skin cancer, in particular basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinomas. There have been tremendous changes in this field in the recent past that really has uh, given tremendous opportunity for treatments, great hope for patients, and has really lit the spark for further development in therapeutics and in the way we take care of these patients. So let's start from the beginning. Um, and I should point out that I'm on a program with Dr. Mario Couture, who's a, a really a fantastic colleague and incredibly learned person. And uh, I always make the joke that whenever Mario speaks, I take notes. Uh, so you will hear me say in this program uh, bits and pieces of which I uh, will refer to what he's going to tell, talk to you about uh, later on in the program. Starting from the beginning, uh, basal cell and squamous cells speak to uh, oftentimes how these uh, entities look under the microscope, uh, and they are two distinct uh, cancers. And how we understand cancers is we look at their cell of origin. Where do they come from? And squamous cell comes from the cells in the uh, um, skin, which gives rise to these to squames. And what are squames? Squames are these scaly-like cells. Uh, which uh, make up the epidermis and, uh, and, and shed off the, uh, the skin uh, uh, as a part of their natural uh, process. In fact, when you take a 
bath and you see a ring around the bathtub, that's the, uh, those are the, uh, the, uh, the squame cells or the squame uh, remnants that have sloughed off the skin naturally as part of uh, how skin uh, works. Basal cells come from deeper within the skin, and both these cancers have a distinct look under a microscope, and that's why they're divided into these two distinct entities. I think it's fair to say that uh, for the most part, these are also lesions which are regularly recognizable by uh, physicians, dermatologists, primary care people, and even patients themselves. Uh, they are often uh, appear as growths on the skin, and when brought to the attention of, uh, of people who recognize these, physicians who recognize these, especially dermatologists, uh, oftentimes they can be resected and uh, taken care of right then and there. Uh, I'm going to restrict my comments to those uh, entities, the, the advanced parts, those situations in which these cancers have escaped the normal confines of what, what can be done in the office. They are usually present as larger lesions or more deeply invasive lesions and sometimes even metastatic. And what, by metastatic, we mean that these have escaped their primary organ, which is the skin, and gone to other parts of the body. And that's a part uh, that makes cancer particularly difficult. It's safe to say that many years ago, uh, especially when I was starting to learn how to be a doctor over 20 years ago, there was very little we can do for these that had an impact on patients, and that has completely changed. That has changed because of the fact that there are new approaches and new drugs, and much of this has come from the science of understanding how these work. The, the treatments of these advanced uh, diseases now I should point out I'm going to restrict my comments again uh, to the advanced situation because oftentimes uh, these uh, skin cancers can be resected at the, you know, in the office or sometimes in the surgical suite. But in those situations where that's not possible, we use medicines. And those are the advanced situations which are uh, escape the ability of surgical control or even sometimes radiation control to the local site. There are medicines that, that have come to the forefront, and uh, and, and they are uh, different medicines for these two cancers. So I'm going to s almost split the program in half now and speak about one and then the other and try to bring it all back together at the end. For squamous cell carcinoma, there is a recognition uh, that these are cancers that are sensitive to medicines that stimulate the immune system. That's correct. We don't use chemotherapy uh, as we did in the past as a primary approach, but mostly medicines that are um, given to stimulate the immune system. This is a new strategy that has really come forward recently in oncology, and uh, it is in, in using the immune system to fight cancer called immunotherapy uh, is really uh, the standard of care in many other cancers, and, uh, and, and every day there's more information coming that more and more cancers are susceptible to this. We now recognize that squamous cell carcinoma is a cancer which is sensitive to uh, treatment with immune therapy. Immune therapies are medicines that are given intravenous. Uh, although in development, there are currently no medicines that you can take by mouth that can, uh, that can stimulate the immune system. So these are intravenous therapy. They're given intermittently. They are proteins that are given through the, uh, uh, through the intravenous route. They go into the immune system, and, and the job of these medicines is to, is to go in and stimulate the immune system, such that the patient's own immune system gets awakened and uh, once the immune system is awakened in an appropriate fashion, um, oftentimes it can recognize that the, uh, the squamous cell carcinoma and begin to attack it. So there were multiple advantages to this. 
uh, and I think the one that's most important is the fact that um, uh, that once you can simulate the immune system to uh, fight the cancer, then the results can be long-lasting. This is the part where I want to spend 30 seconds talking about what the immune system is. That's a thing you're, in your body that you're born with. That is a system, not one organ, but multiple things, lymphocytes, eosinophils, your spleen, your liver, lymph nodes, so on and so forth, the bone marrow. So it's a system put in place in your body, which you're born with, which really distinguishes between what's you and what's not you. And the things that, that aren't you, that don't belong to you, are fought off, like infections and germs. And so uh, using that same system, we turn that system against the cancer. And you can now see that if you are able to do this in a way that, uh, uh, that, that, that your immune system recognizes the cancer, the hope is, and, and the evidence is starting to show, that these can be long-lasting, hopefully even curative. And that's what's really the exciting part about this. Now, I'm going to leave this part of it and talk about basal cell carcinoma. What do we do about the advanced diseases there? Well, there's been a lot of research into that. And it turns out that basal cells uh, uh, are responsible in the skin for maybe rejuvenating skin and so on and so forth. In many ways, it, it uses a different uh, way of growing and propagating itself. It turns out that uh, you can uh, use a medicine called hedgehog inhibitor. Now, stay with me for a second. It's kind of crazy. But what's a hedgehog inhibitor? This comes all the way back decades ago when people used to study mutations in flies. And, and there's a mutation that causes the flies to, to have this sort of uh, uh, appearance that resembles a hedgehog. And henceforth, once they, once they discovered what the gene was, uh, and they call and they recognize that uh, 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 the, the gene causes appearance, they call this thing a hedgehog uh, pathway. And it turns out that basal cell carcinomas use the hedgehog pathway to become cancerous. That's that's the real finding. And so when people realized that basal cell carcinomas needed hedgehog to become malignant that the hedgehog was a thing that made it go from benign to malignant, the next step was to develop hedgehog inhibitors. And these inhibitors come in the form of pills. And, 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 and you take these pills on a regular basis, determined by your doctor, and they can go in your body and go into the uh, basal cell carcinoma and turn off this hedgehog pathway. And results uh, can be extraordinary with r real reduction in the mass of the tumor, and, you, and, and, and oftentimes you get uh, great results with this. Um, and so you can see that these are uh, cancers in which we've made tremendous progress at two, uh, along two different lines. Now, there's no such thing as a, as a medicine without side effects. So the side effects of, of, of these hedgehog inhibitors are, are things like, uh, like such as joint pain, muscle pain. Uh, people lose hair from this. And I want to point out that Dr. Lecture will also say a few words about, about this because he's also an expert in this area. And you should have the benefit of his statements as well. Um, and the one that patients uh, also talk about is a change in the way uh, they can taste things. And in the words of one of my patients, he goes, Dr. Wong, I can't tell whether I'm chewing on an onion or an apple. And because of that, frequently my patients on these medicines lose weight. So you have to pay attention to these things. Now, on the immunotherapy side, to, to switch back over to the squamous cell carcinoma, those side effects are almost universally having to do 
with your immune system waking up, and, and in addition to attacking the cancer, it can also attack your own body. And so they can manifest in multitudes of ways, but they're universally always as a, as a consequence of uh, inflammation gone awry. And so the, uh, the treatments of those have to do with medicine that can, can suppress the inflammation and can also uh, uh, sometimes tune down the immune system a bit. So I tell my folks, tell my patients it's like a, like a thermostat. Too much to one side, you sort of tune it down until you get to the right situation. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, how to manage side effects, discomfort, and pain. And Dr. Lucretier is going to talk a bit about this as well. But the most important tool is communication. It is, uh, it is difficult to, uh, to, to really uh, uh, figure out these side effects just by looking at lab results and x-rays. That's only a part of the entire assessment. I tell my, 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 my young students and my uh, doctors in training, that when you sit down with a patient who's undergoing treatment for basal cell or for uh, with hedgehog inhibitors or with squamous cell carcinomas with uh, uh, immune modulatory drugs uh, and immunotherapy, 95% um, of the clues come from sitting down, looking people in the eye, and having a conversation. So very important to, to relay to your doctors what's going on. You might sometimes need to write it down if it's intermittent. You might need to t keep a diary of things. That's super important because how we manage it and, uh, has to do with how we uh, uh, see your side effects happening over time. So that's kind of very important. I left the last topic to the end of one that people have been talking about, which is what's going on with COVID-19 and skin cancers. And in one simple uh, sentence, Right now, today, there is no connection that we know of between COVID-19 and skin, advanced skin cancers. Um, this is an emerging field, so you're going to hear different things happening over, uh, over the, the time moving forward because we're just learning as we go along. But it's important to realize a few fundamental things. It's really rare to have cancer happen from one thing. It's rare. Even if you look at things like uh, like smoking and uh, UV exposure to skin, there's usually a multitude of things happening over time to make it happen. So, uh, so even though this thing is dominating the healthcare uh, landscape at this point in time, this COVID-19 thing, uh, as, uh, uh, so far today, uh, we don't know of any association between that and advanced skin cancer. But I say stay tuned because we're learning all the time. So finally, in the last minute, I want to summarize uh, what I've just said to you. I want to leave you with a sense that this is an area of tremendous hope and opportunity. Let me repeat that, tremendous hope and opportunity. We, and when we see a patient coming in with advanced disease, we are thinking, can we cure this patient? Right? And, and cure means, so, so we're on the same page, can we treat someone to con control or completely eliminate the cancer uh, now and forever, both parts of the equation? control and, and over time, very important. So I'm, I want to leave you with a sense of, of optimism and hope. Like I said in the beginning, these are medicines that have started to really uh, made us rethink how, uh, how to treat these cancers, opening up new avenues for, and opportunities for treatment. And at that, I'm going to leave uh, you uh, back to Dr. Mesner and to my colleague, Dr. LeCouture. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was really outstanding. And I know that there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And just to, um, and actually to, um, to conclude your remarks with a sense of hope is always a wonderful thing for people to hear. So thank you so much.
And our next speaker is Dr. Mario Lacatour. Dr. Lacatour is Director, Oncodermatology Program, a member attending physician, Dermatology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's Professor of Dermatology while Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Lacatour is going to address clinical trials, how research contributes to your treatment options, tips for curing for your skin during cancer treatments, sun safety tips, guidelines for communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns, and the important role of telehealth appointments and social distancing. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lacatour. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to address uh, so many of you that are uh, uh, with us today. And uh, I would like to thank uh, our previous uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Wong, for the clearest uh, explanation on the recent advances in uh, the treatment of uh, skin cancers, uh, which really has set the stage. Uh, and as he indicated so well, uh, in, in an area that in which there is so much hope and opportunity from so many new advances that have really changed the lives of so many people, uh, thanks to the contributions of people like Dr. Wong and his colleagues. I would like to uh, take a few moments of the time to speak on what are the consequences, of, as Dr. Wong indicated, of those uh, adverse effects that can occur secondary to the use of these novel medicines. And as Dr. Wong indicated, there is no such thing as any medicine with no side effects. So what are the most common side effects that we can experience from these drugs? Well, first, uh, we can speak about the uh, immunotherapies. As uh, described before, these uh, therapies will activate your immune system and will unleash its power so that it can destroy these uh, cells that the oncologists want to fight. But at the same time, some of those cells from your immune system that are meant to attack microbes and germs will turn on uh, normal cells and can attack normal cells on your body. So immune therapies can result in a variety of side effects that can affect virtually every part and every organ of the body. And usually the consequences will be that these organs or these parts of the body will become inflamed. So any part of your body, you add uh, an itis at the end, and that is what these side effects will appear as. The most commonly occurring ones are inflammation of the skin and the intestines. And this will be manifested as a rash that can be very itchy or uh, intestinal pain, uh, discomfort, and diarrhea that can be uh, painful and leading to, uh, of course, uh, an impact on quality of life. The good news is that both of these uh, reactions can be treated effectively by your oncologist if they are informed early on, usually with the use of anti-inflammatory medications of the steroid uh, family. These medications, when they are used properly, can result in the improvement of most of these adverse reactions to immunotherapy. Importantly, when these immune-related side effects occur, they, are, they can be associated with a greater benefit from the drug. In other words, people that develop side effects will usually have a better response in terms of how these drugs are acting by destroying the cancer. So it is important to 
stay with the uh, treatment and find ways to manage these side effects so that people can receive the most benefit from their therapy. Now, these therapies frequently occur within the first two to three months, but they can occur months or years into uh, the treatment with immunotherapies. So it's important to always stay vigilant and inform your oncologist and their team about any untoward reactions that may occur. With the other uh, group of drugs that uh, Dr. Wong so clearly mentioned, the hedgehog pathway inhibitors, these drugs are a little bit different because they are taken usually as tablets by mouth and their side effects take usually a few weeks to appear, but they will be very noticeable. With the immunotherapy, sometimes you will not notice you have side effects because the organs that are being inflamed are inside your body. So your doctor will notice these with a lab test or sometimes with a special type of MRI or a CT scan. With the hedgehog pathway inhibitors, on the other hand, you will start seeing side effects within, a first, within the first few weeks. And the most commonly occurring side effects are, as described before, the changes in taste. People say that even water can taste metallic or have this um, taste that is unappealing. So the uh, food also loses its taste, and um, uh, they, people will prefer not to eat because nothing tastes good. Certain recommendations have been set forth, and uh, recommendations that include adding spice to food or eating very flavorful foods uh, are helpful. Uh, to drink juices or flavored waters instead of just plain water, to not have foods so hot that they can also irritate the lining of the mouth. And in addition to that, not using metallic uh, 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 forks and spoons, but rather using plastic forks and spoons because these appear to lessen the bad taste that some of the foods may have. Hedgehog pathway inhibitors can also lead to hair uh, loss or decreased hair growth on the scalp. This can be very troublesome for some people, and there are some interventions that may be beneficial that are available over the counter. There is a product known as minoxidil that is applied onto the scalp, and it could help some people that are affected by hair loss with the treatment of hedgehog pathway inhibitors. So all of these adverse events can be treated uh, with some recommendations, they can be mitigated, but in some cases, the oncologist may decide to give the drug at uh, intermittent doses so that the effects are not as impactful on a person's quality of life and people can stay on the medicine as long as possible with, obviously, uh, a good quality of life, which is also paramount to uh, all medical oncologists' care. Now, it's important, as Dr. Wong and Dr. Messner mentioned, that in this uh, trying time for everyone uh, to be alert for uh, things that one has to be cautious of with the uh, widespread prevalence of the COVID-19 uh, disease and the virus. Staying at least six feet away from other people, wearing a mask wherever outside, and washing your hands repeatedly with soap and water every time you touch uh, any area is key to minimizing the risk of an infection. Everywhere, all over the world, increasing number of tests are available to determine whether you have been exposed to the virus or whether someone is infected with the virus. Keep in mind 
that the virus can remain on surfaces for three or more days. So when uh, you are outside and you touch any surface that uh, other people uh, will touch frequently, like uh, door handles or surfaces of tables, uh, wash your hands or use antibacterial gels uh, on your hands as well. And avoid touching your face, eyes, or mouth with your hands. And whenever you're opening a door, it's always better to try to use your elbow or to try to push it with the side of your arm rather than using your hands. Because inadvertently, we do touch our faces many times during the day with our hands. And this will also go for the use of cell phones. These germs can sometimes live in the cell phone, so it's important to sanitize our cell phones throughout the day, especially uh, if we are leaving our homes and using them outside. With the use of these masks and protective measures, uh, one uh, may be able to uh, prevent these infections, uh, but thankfully every day more and more is being learned about this uh, virus that is providing uh, emergency physicians uh, more resources as to how to mitigate the impact that this is having on our communities. And along those lines, I just would like to say that there are some skin manifestations of the COVID-19 infection. These are, have been uh, called uh, COVID toes because the majority of patients with skin uh, conditions relating to the COVID infections will manifest by having these purplish, blue, or brown discolorations in areas of the, of the toes of the feet or of the shins. And this is likely a result of inflammation of the blood vessels that along with gravity that pulls the blood down into the legs and with age, most of our legs retain more water uh, because the, the, the pump uh, and the valves that return the blood from our legs back to our heart uh, start failing over time. Any skin condition is usually worse in the lower extremities. And this is what we have found with COVID, which the lesions will usually present in the feet and in the lower extremities. It is important to take advantage of the opportunity that we have with technology, as Dr. Messner mentioned, and use this technology to contact our doctors. Uh, Dr. Wong, uh, who treats many people with uh, medications that have such an impactful uh, and beneficial effect on their lives, are available um, to reach him with the use of telehealth methods. So please contact your medical oncologist or their team and ask if there is any opportunity to reach them via telephone or video communication to inform them of any symptom that you may be having. As the earlier these symptoms are managed, the better the treatments will uh, be a result as it, as it pertains to adverse effects. As we enter the spring season, uh, most of us, of course, would like to go outside and enjoy the weather but please keep in mind that many of these agents, including the immunotherapies and the hedgehog pathway inhibitors, may predispose your skin uh, to being burned from the sun uh, more easily. Now, that's, it's important to keep in mind that we are not recommending people not to go outside at all, but use sun protective measures whenever going outside during the day, especially between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. What are the sun protective measures? Using a broad-brimmed hat that uh, you know covers your face and ears and neck. Using a sunscreen with a sun protection factor of at least 15. 
Apply it every two hours or every hour if you are swimming or sweating. And apply it to all exposed areas of the body when you are outside. If it's cloudy outside, one does not need to be as careful, but keep in mind that the clouds only only prevent 20% of ultraviolet radiation coming from the sun. And since our topic is on skin cancers, we all know how important it is to prevent sun exposure unprotected since sun exposure is uh, thought to be a critical risk factor for the development of squamous cell carcinomas and basal cell carcinomas. So taking all of these recommendations, along with uh, the wonderful information that has been provided earlier by Dr. Wong, we can all feel very hopeful and optimistic that we will get through the uh, current uh, difficult time so we can really derive the benefits that have been uh, provided to uh, thousands and hundreds of thousands all over the world with the newer therapies for advanced squamous cell and basal cell carcinomas. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. LaCour, Dr. That was really excellent, a really outstanding presentation. And um, we are going to take questions shortly. I just want to say a few words about about cancer care services, and then we're going to actually move into questions. So start to prepare your questions. Some of you have already entered questions, but start to think about them. So I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm an oncology social worker, and I'm director of education training with Cancer Care. And I wanted to first just go over with all of you Cancer Care's majority of our services that we offer, our programs and services. Um, so we do offer financial assistance um, uh, for people um, living with cancer, as well as people living with cancer and COVID-19. So basically, just to be aware of that, we do have special funds. We also do have a copay foundation that can help you with some of the costs of your of your medications. That's good to be aware of. And if for some reason we don't have it, we'll refer you to places that do. In addition to that, we have what we call a cancer care um, Hopeline, um, and it's an 800 number that you can call or you can visit our website. And actually, um, there you can have uh, a conversation with one of our oncology social workers, um, either on the telephone or online, and receive counseling services for the concerns and questions you may have. That can be very, very helpful at this time, particularly in this period of of social distancing where people have a greater sense perhaps sometimes of isolation, of feeling alone, um, of feeling not connected. And so it's a great way for people to actually call, talk to somebody, bring up your concerns and questions. Now, another service that we offer is we also offer support groups, and we offer those support groups on the telephone and online. And those groups also do the same thing, they, and we have them for all different ages and all different types of cancers. Um, so for both um, young adults, older adults, caregivers, middle-aged adults, every walk of life we do have a group for, um, whether it be on the telephone or online, and um, also on particular types of cancers as well. And so for many people, again, um, those groups have always been helpful to people, um, but I think they have a greater importance now, again, with this sense of isolation. And then, and it kind of fits in with being able to talk to people on the phone or, or, or else to, um, 
to, you know, to communicate with each other online about questions and concerns. All of those programs are professionally facilitated by trained oncology social workers, and we have many of these groups available. So that's uh, uh, that's one of our services. We also have, I just want to mention two other services we have. One is we have a, a program to help uh, children um, understand cancer in the family. So for, uh, it's a cancer care for kids program as both uh, kids and young and adolescents and young adults actually. Um, we do have a separate young adult program as well. So a lot of times families often do not know how to communicate what to say to children, and these programs really help with that. And in addition to that, we also have this year um, really inaugurated a program in which many many people on this call, not everybody, may have a pet um, and, and may have a dog or cat and that needs care, and they themselves may not feel up to taking care of them. And this particular program will help for the um, some of the financial uh, care that might be needed in terms of getting someone to walk your dog or even to help you with getting food for your dog. And indeed, the same is true for the COVID-19 program. It does help also to get food for people as well. So just to be aware that we have a range of services. They're all accessible from our website or calling our 800 number. And um, our 800 number is 1-800-813-4673. And our, our website is www.cancercare.org. So now we do have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Norma to actually bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And Norma will explain to you how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Stephanie S. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, thank you, doctors, for taking the time. Um, the simple surgical masks that you see that the hospital gives out, A, does that provide any protection from the sun? And I've only known a couple of people who have had basal cell carcinoma and then get squamous cell carcinoma. Is it possible to get squamous cell carcinoma before you have basal cell carcinoma? Excellent question. Thank you. I'm going to ask um, the first question, the surgical masks, if Dr. Lakatura could address that one, and the second question um, to Dr. Wong. So, Dr. Um, Lakatura, would you like to address this surgical, the, the question about the surgical masks? Yes, thank you. Uh, what a great question. Actually, it's the first time that anyone has ever uh, asked us that question, and I really think it's uh, it's very important because if uh, one is wearing the mask uh, for the prevention of a, a, a disease that is transmitted by droplets, why not uh, think about preventing uh, sun exposure? And uh, it, it should. Uh, I don't uh, think that uh, anyone has measured whether it prevents the penetration of UV radiation, but uh, based on the, um, the thickness of the layers, it should uh, prevent any type of, um, of, of uh, burn, sunburns or, or UV radiation entering those particular areas. Uh, keep in mind that these masks will only cover the lower part of the face, uh, when you use these masks, keep it, uh, also try uh, to adjust it so that it covers 
the bridge of the nose so air does not go through that area, and also it will cover a greater area to prevent uh, sun exposure. If you are using these masks as a method to prevent sun exposure, uh, remember to use a hat that would cover your forehead and your ears or to use uh, sunscreen to your forehead, your ears, and your neck. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Wong, would you address the question about um, the, set, the first question? Sure. Yeah, happy to. And that's a very astute observation. Uh, I run a clinic in advanced skin cancers, and uh, what we see is that it's not uncommon for these cancers to cluster together. And the reason for that is that uh, uh, sun exposure is a risk factor for all uh, these skin cancers. That includes things like uh, melanoma, Merkel cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and basal cell carcinomas. And different parts of the body react differently, so you don't get all these skin cancers coming up at once. But because they share... Uh, risk factor, the sun being a common risk factor, it's not uncommon for uh, my patients to come in with, you know, with uh, dual or sometimes triple diagnosis. It doesn't mean they all show up at once, but it does mean that someone who's had a great deal of sun exposure and has a, a, a skin cancer on their skin, um, even though it's localized and taken care of almost immediately in the dermatologist's office, it's a signal. It's a flag that says, hey, look what I can do now. So I tell all these patients that uh, they should have on their team uh, someone who uh, is able to uh, uh, have longitudinal follow-up with their skin. So that's a dermatologist, for example, who can see them on a regular basis, keep surveillance on their skin. And in today's age of uh, everyone having a cell phone with a camera, I tell my patients, uh, especially now since we're doing telemedicine, that if they have something suspicious on their skin, and again, these are my patients with advanced skin cancers, and so they have a heightened risk of a, you know, because of what we just talked about, of a, another skin cancer coming up. I say, hey, take a picture of it right now, today, and uh, the pictures come, uh, come uh, date stamped. And I always tell them to always take it, uh, using the same source of light. So I say, you know, go by a window or go to the same window on a, on a, on a nice sunny day and take the picture. Why? Because sometimes we look at pigmentation and whether it's under fluorescent light, you know, your incandescent light bulb or sunlight, so on and so forth, makes a difference. So, uh, so what I tell folks, changes over time matter. So yes, you can get them coming up together. Not always, but they can. Yes, they happen sometimes because uh, they share the same... Um, risk factors, and we uh, have a way of keeping track of them. So, uh, and again, communication with the healthcare team, very important if you, if you have some concerns that way. Thank you. Thank you. And um, for Dr. Tour, can advanced skin cancers turn into melanoma? Um, so the question is whether advanced skin cancers can turn into melanoma. I think that, that I would respond that the answer is uh, is no. These are very distinct diseases, and uh, thankfully, the most common type of skin cancer is basal cell carcinoma, which is the least likely uh, to spread, followed by squamous cell carcinoma in terms of uh, incidence and dead melanoma. Uh, but I do know that uh, Dr. Wong has done remarkable work in the laboratory um, understanding how cells divide and grow to become uh, the various types of cancer. So I, I think that this, Dr. Wang may have uh, something else to add to this. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Lakatur and Dr. Wong. Do you want to add something as well? Thank you. Well, it's a great team. So, yeah, thank you very much. And so, uh, all these cancers are distinct. They look very different under a microscope. So, uh, uh, and if you were going to ask specifically whether a squame can become a basal, a basal can become a squame, the answer uh, in a simple terms, no, because they come from different parts of the skin. Melanoma, for instance, comes from the melanocytes, which are which make melanin, which makes your skin dark, uh, or which uh, makes moles dark, uh, whereas squamous cells uh, don't come from a a complete different part of the skin and does basal. So they have what we call this thing called lineage, where they follow a line. Uh, So... um, uh, and so squames be, uh, tend to be squames, and basals tend to be basals, and melanoma tends to be melanoma. Now, I want to point out that the, the, patient, the person asked a question said advanced skin cancer. So advanced skin cancer, skin cancer is a generic umbrella term which encompasses all those entities you just talked about. And advanced really means that they may uh, be, uh, require more care than just simple excision in a dermatologist's office. So that's a very broad term. And, but today we're talking about very specific entities, which really means that uh, when you are in front of a doctor uh, or at a doctor's office or you're communicating with a doctor, those details really make a difference. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have a question um, actually from one of our participants, and this for Dr. Um, Wong. If you have been treated for lymphoma, does it put you at greater risk of developing skin cancer? Um, so uh, that's a difficult question, and the reason why it's difficult is because lymphoma today is an entity in which they have subdivided lymphomas into multiple different types. And uh, and in each particular category, there are different ways of treating it, uh, all the way from immunotherapy to bone marrow transplant to regular uh, uh, chemotherapy. So... Um, so it's hard to answer it into one encompassing uh, umbrella. However, having said that, uh, any condition in which we have manipulated the immune system in any way, shape, or form, or in which you have a, uh, a history of, um, uh, of a cancer like lymphoma that can influence the immune, your immune system, uh, that requires uh, sort of vigilance on a part of your healthcare team. Um, so, uh, because of all the permutations and and combinations of things that can happen with that, um, so it uh, so it requires again uh, your healthcare team to, to to be aware that you've had this condition. So communication is important, especially seeing doctors for the first time, uh, and it should trigger your healthcare team to say, "Wow, this is a situation in which uh, we have to be a little bit more vigilant." Uh, in order to really truly understand, truly understand the impact of the lymphoma on this on this one person. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and we have another question from our uh, online participants. Um, so, um, actually, for, I'm going to ask Dr. Lakatour, but I know that Dr. Wang will weigh in on it as well. But for advanced cancers of either um, basal cell or a squamous cell cancers, are the medicine treatments preferred over Mohs technique? Okay, so that's a that's a very interesting question and I wanna thank the person who who sent this question for uh for um being so thoughtful. Uh 
the the use of uh, the most procedure is uh, reserved for uh, skin cancers, uh, basal cell or squamous cell carcinomas, in which uh, the surgery is thought to accom accomplish a cure, uh, and a cure uh, being defined as the cancer not recurring within five years or having a very low recurrence rate or the likelihood of coming back of being about one to two up to five percent. Uh, when um, a skin cancer, either a squamous cell or a basal cell carcinoma, uh, is not a thought to be able to be cured uh, with the use of this technique, the Mohs technique, which uh, it comes from the name of this uh, uh, talented uh, surgeon who devised a technique in which uh, a minimum amount of skin would be removed, yet it would be uh, enough to be analyzed under the microscope so that the majority of the skin cancer could be removed. In other words, you could uh, remove most of a skin cancer, leaving the smallest uh, type of uh, scar. Uh, so when this most procedure is not feasible because the uh, tumor is too deep or is too wide, then in those cases, uh, treatments that uh, could be administered by Dr. Wong uh, would be utilized. There may be other cases in which uh, medications would be preferred over surgery, for example, certain parts of the body being involved in which surgery may not be amenable, uh, for example, in the areas such as by the genitals uh, or in certain parts of the face or in areas that have received a lot of radiation in the past in which a surgery would um, result in a wound that would not close. Um, treatments with medications would be preferred. Um, but uh, those are very two uh, co good complementary options and uh, they may be used at different points uh, or different times during the disease. Excellent. Thank you. And, and Dr. Wan, did you want anything? or is this? So I, I want to echo uh, what Dr. my colleague just said. Uh, it, it's, it's, the, it's part of the toolbox of what we need to do to, to get that person completely cancer-free. And the only thing I would add is that sometimes uh, and I know this is uh, this happens in both our institutions because we both work in places where we work as teams. That sometimes we go back and forth. You know, we I, I sit down with the most surgeons and say, you know, is uh, if, if you're having difficulty resecting this, could we give medicines to make your job easier, right? And so there's a real discussion that goes back and forth, and what we call sometimes difficult or or, or marginal cases that are difficult to resect. Uh, and uh, but possible, and so so it's a team effort sometimes uh, uh, where we bring both uh, the medicines and the surgical part together and sequence them in such a way uh, because at the end of the day the goal is cancer free completely and forever. Excellent. And this isn't a question in front of our participants. It's a particular question for that particular person. But I wonder, if, Dr. Wong, if you could address it. Um, with some guidelines for the participant to perhaps bring back to her healthcare team. I am on a drug hydroxyurea that is causing the squamous cell cancer. Can I receive IV therapy? What about radiation therapy? 
is this recommended? I've been suffering with this for almost 20 years with it being handled with dermatologists and plastic surgery in Florida. Yeah, so this is this is obviously a, a very complicated case because there's an ongoing baseline issue or problem, and then we have all these other things happening. And, and the best I can say is when, when faced with this, um, uh, the question for the doctor is, you know, uh, what is the approach that can give us the, uh, you know, sort of long, the best long-term results, right? And then, and then you may need to uh, to to see several different people to get there, right? For instance, the, the example I use may be relevant here, right? Uh, most surgeons, a medical oncologist, a radiation doctor, and sometimes we bring everybody into the fold. Um, I think this is a case that if this if, uh, if it's this complex that deserves to be looked at at a at a major cancer center, and it's not that we're better than anybody else; is that we actually have assembled the teams and the resources uh, to handle these difficult cases, acknowledging that this is sometimes difficult to do in a community because you you don't have all the bits and pieces together. Uh, this is not something we would do for. Uh, less complicated cases, those can be very easily handled and should be handled by uh, competent uh, physicians and dermatologists and primary care physicians in the community. But here's an example where a, a consultation in a major, major medical center may be something that's very important. And actually, I think I will contact um, these, uh, this caller after the call so we can go over some of the closest um, comprehensive centers in, for her in Florida that might be useful to consider, um, even to call them or even for them to work with um, the treating physician or even to work with you um, on a conference call. So um, I'll, I'll be in touch with you after the call as well sure. just mm-hmm. to bring this up because I think Dr. Wong brings up a very good, a good point that if there are situations where it really is important to clearly um, – sometimes to be treated at a major, what we call NCI-designated center. Do you want to say exactly what that is, Dr. Wong, so people understand? Because a lot of places will say they're a cancer center, but that as NCI designation means a bit more than that. And I know both Dr. Lekatora and Dr. Um, Dr. Wong are both from NCI-designated centers. Right. So, uh, so it's, a, it's a designation conferred upon a center by the National Cancer Institute. And the NCI... Uh, has specific criteria for uh, what constitutes this. They have to have uh, certain services in place. They have to have a cancer registry. I mean, there is a long laundry list. And what it really means is that this is a center that, uh, that in looking after cancer, uh, brings together various uh, expertise, has a team structure, and, uh, and participates in the education and the research that goes along with cancer care. So they're, they're, we are held to a standard. This is a not a one-time deal, but it's renewed on a regular basis. Every renewal is is a renewal onto itself. You have to meet the criteria. And what it is basically is that it sort of puts the moniker of an NCI designated cancer center and and tells people that this is a place where uh, comprehensive uh, uh, cancer care is delivered uh, in a setting that has uh, educational and research component, uh, and it will bring into things like also just not just research, but you know, community care, prevention, so on and so forth. So it, it is comprehensive in that way. Uh, I'll let Dr. Lickature speak as well, then, because he has extensive experience with this as well. Yes. No. Thank you. That was a that was a perfect definition. I would just like to add 
and I think as Dr. Wong indicated that uh, at uh, NCI-designated cancer centers, uh, uh, the only thing we, we treat is is cancer and its associated conditions. So we have a, a group of ex- experts that work and communicate um, together, uh, use the same language, uh, understand uh, what really are the priorities um, in order to uh, get the best outcome uh, of the treatment and also, um, as everyone else, thinking first about uh, patients and how to make their lives better through the treatment and at the same time learning and doing the research and thinking how can we make all of these treatments better so that um, cancer uh, can be controlled uh, better than ever before. Can I just add one thing I did yes. I forgot to answer, Dr. Messer, is that uh, there, there is a regular expectation that we are uh, both drivers and participants in clinical trials. So for this particular person, uh, if they have a complex situation and the way forward is not necessarily clear and there may be some new drugs that, that may be helpful, well, you know, the, we do not in cancer care just open up the cupboard and say, you this drugs. And if you've been following the COVID business, you know, the idea of doing clinical trials is very important because at the end of the day, we have to say, is this, number one, safe or not safe? And number two, does it work or not work? And these are similarly simple questions, but they require a thoughtfulness to it to get to the answer to help not just that one person, but for everyone who comes after that one person. So, so for a play, for a person with a complicated uh, situation or who have exhausted sort of the conventional therapies, what we know is is currently effective, the, you know, a place that does clinical trials is important. I should point out that uh, you know the everything I've talked about about hedgehog inhibitors, immunotherapy, all came to to be because the clinical trials in those areas were done, we have the information, we know how well it works, we know where it doesn't work, and we know where we need to be better. And all that comes from clinical trials. Thank you. And now we have another question from one of our um, participants here. Um, The concern about long-term usage of steroids allied with immunotherapy and skin cancers. Could you say something about that? Dr. Wong, to start. Sure. So steroids are medicines used to uh, uh, suppress inflammation and suppress uh, the immune system. They have their place in medicine. They are incredibly important. An example would be someone who has a terrible allergy to something, bee stings, peanut. Steroids may be life-saving in that situation. They are also, they can be given intravenously by pills or in cream form, topical as we call it, and uh, they are used uh, in in immune therapy sometimes to counteract an over-exuberant immune system, which has taken over sometimes or rolls so quickly and so aggressively that not only do you hit the cancer, as Dr. Couture pointed out in his uh, segment, but also, uh, you know, start impacting patient uh, well-being. So colitis, which is inflammation of colon, pneumonitis, inflammation of the lungs, those are two uh, situations which, left unchecked, can be fatal. Thank God, really rarely, but we know that you have to take care of it. So steroids are in that category. Sometimes you have inflammatory conditions as a, as a disease, and these are called autoimmune diseases, uh, or sometimes you need to suppress the immune system, say if you have a, had a solid organ transplant, for instance. So just use these specific examples. So uh, 
patients sometimes end up on uh, steroids for an uh, extended period of time to, in order to control this. We know that having an in, in, uh, a intact immune system helps in the control of cancer, but like I just said before, it's, uh, with every medication, you always have to look at the risk and the benefits, even for a simple aspirin. You have to think about that. So uh, there are uses for long-term steroids, and you have to be careful. That said, we are today uh, vigorously exploring options in which we are trying to use what's called narrow uh, band, uh, sorry, narrow immunomodulators. So in other words, can we only hit part of the immune system? So uh, can we hit, you know, interleukin-12? Can we hit interleukin-15? Can we hit, what are these? These are specific molecules inside your body which mediate the immune system, which cause the immune system to ramp up to it. Can we, so instead of hosing down completely the entire landscape to, in the hope of hitting the, the bushfire, can we use a little squirt gun and just aim it right at the, where the fire is? Uh, those are areas which we're, everyone in the community is exploring vigorously, uh, and uh, the, attempt, uh, the idea here is to use uh, only as much immune suppression as we need to avoid uh, as much as possible long-term um, immune suppression with broad spectrum immune suppressions and to and to use as little as possible for as short as possible. Excellent, thank you. And we have a final question actually um, which is we did address it during the call but it looks like it's here it is. How is skin cancer being treated today during the pandemic? So do you want to start Dr. Wong and then Dr. Lacatour? Yeah, That'll be so our last question. Correct. So this is an important thing, you know, social distancing and uh, avoidance of uh, contact with uh, a population of immunosuppressed individuals because cancer centers are exactly places where people get therapies such as uh, transplants, such as uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy, which can make their immune system lowered. And there was a hint from original Chinese data that cancer patients may be particularly susceptible. So how do we look after patients in that situation is we, we, we strategize, uh, we, we, we put them in categories uh, and in broad terms you know do you have a situation where uh, where harm is imminent and we try to address them uh, as 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 best we can immediately do you have a situation where harm may may happen in the near future then you you can send triage them to say to try to get them in at a, at a perhaps a later time or to temporize using other measures and obviously we have situations which are low case right surveillance type of patients patients who have no cancer but we're keeping an eye on all these are important to the individual, but we have to stratify risk. And, and in putting them in these sort of three major categories, it helps us deal with it. And so those in the very highest risk category where harm is imminent, we get them in, get these patients in, and treat them best we can immediately. Excellent. And um, thank you. And, and uh, Dr. Lacatour, do you want to add anything to that? Yes, I would like to echo uh, Dr. Wong's comments that uh, – it, it is very important to uh, maintain uh, your treatments as planned by your oncologist, but also keeping in mind that uh, the majority of um, evaluations and follow-ups could be done by a, a telemedicine visit. In other words, uh, a, a telephone call with video and then the appropriate laboratory testing uh, conducted um, at uh, the institution. The key here is to limit the number of exposures uh, to different people as you visit your doctor and as you travel to visit your doctor. So 
Um, I know that many centers are limiting the number of uh, patients that are able to uh, go to the institution. So uh, whenever feasible, delaying uh, a treatment um, is recommended. And uh, the number of visits, uh, also uh, the recommendation is to minimize these during this uh, difficult time, uh, but always keeping the lines of communication open so that your oncologist is aware of any of the symptoms that you may be experiencing so that they can be addressed and uh, the uh, maximum benefit can be derived from your therapy. Oh, thank you so much. I want to thank our speakers, both Dr. Wong and Dr. Lacatour, outstanding presentations. And really, I also wish to thank, of course, our participants, both on the phone and on online, who asked such really great questions that allow us to amplify and discuss issues of great concern to all of you. Now, I do recognize that many of you have many more questions that we did not get to, and so I want to be sure that um, we address this. So um, we always, of course, um, want you to take the information you've learned today back to your treating healthcare team. That's really very important because, indeed, your treating healthcare team, they're the best, actually, to be able to tell you, um, you know, exactly, they know the most about you. So take what you've learned today back to your treating healthcare team. Even if you asked a question, take the information you back to treatment, and if you didn't ask a question but heard something, take it back to treating healthcare team. But we also know that many of you like to do your own research um, about, you know, about this topic, and to some extent, we do want to recommend that you go to what we call credible websites, those that have been, that are in the year 2020, and actually in the month, actually, that you're looking at as well, and there are, um, we have we'll be sending you an evaluation form within two days after this program. We appreciate your feedback in the evaluation, but we also want to provide you with all of the resources that are mentioned during the program. So you will have um, access to the, all the, the resources that you could possibly, that are credible, that you can use to actually um, to get further information for yourselves. That's really important. Like the National Cancer Institute, um, that's really an important resource for all of you, and many of the skin cancer organizations that we've partnered with on today's program as well. Most importantly, as we're wrapping up the program today, I would not want any of you to feel that you're alone. I want you to now know that you are part of a community of support. It is normal to feel alone sometimes. With social distancing, I think it um, exacerbates people's feelings of alone, and so it makes it worse. It makes people feel a little bit more alone than usual. So we do want you to take advantage of resources available. For those of you who need more information from a medical perspective, your healthcare team and, of course, the National Cancer Institute and all the other medical resources we'll provide for you. However, for those of you who'd like to pursue any services at Cancer Care, whether they be practical, financial, or counseling services or support groups, you can simply contact Cancer Care. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.